Welcome to the podcast series, Who's Who in Emergency Medicine. This will be a monthly podcast where we get to know some of the leading figures in academic emergency medicine. So join us in this session and we hope you enjoy. Hi, for everyone joining us today, my name is Tina. I'm currently a PGY3 at Mount Sinai Hospital. And it is with great honor that I am here today with Dr. Amal Matute. He is well known in the field of emergency medicine as an expert in cardiology, currently practicing at the University of Maryland, is vice chair of education there, author of multiple best-selling EKG books, founder of EKGweekly.com, editor of publications in both cardiology and geriatrics, winner of more awards than I can name, and the list goes on. So welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks. Thanks for reading that introduction my mom wrote. (laughs) I had to. Could you actually just start off by telling us a little bit more about your background, like home, maybe more about mom? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I was born in Ohio, so I guess I'm a Buckeye. Lived in California for a handful of years and then have now spent most of my life in Maryland. Grew up in the D.C. suburbs and went to college in Baltimore and medical school in Baltimore and then went to Philadelphia for residency. And after I finished residency in 1996, I joined the faculty at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And during the first six years, I worked at one of the affiliate hospitals, Mercy Hospital. So it gave me a chance to kind of hone my own skills and still get intubations and centralized and all the rest. And then... In 2002, I became program director, and I was therefore required to move to the mothership, and so I moved over to University of Maryland Medical Center, which is the main teaching institution for the university, and I've been there ever since 2002. That's a long haul there. Yeah. I didn't say anything about my mom. Both of my parents are still living in Maryland, in the D.C. suburbs, in Rockville. I have a brother who lives out there as well, and I visit them frequently. Oh. So Maryland's going to be home. It is. For good. It is. Gotcha. Given that you've done program director and now chair and doing all Or vice chair. Vice chair, I apologize. Don't want to be chair. <laughs> <laughs> How is that, like the transitions and, and what caused you to go down all those different paths? Sure. Well, I became program director when our then program director, Brian Earl, wanted to step down to focus on ultrasound. So he was the person who really developed ultrasound in our curriculum, and it was an interest of his. And he's done a great job with that. And in looking for a new program director, I think uh, our chair felt comfortable with the faculty that we had, and I felt that you know my main interest was in education. And so I stepped into that role mostly because of my interest in education. And unfortunately, as the program director role became more and more time-intensive from an administrative standpoint. In terms of paperwork, I decided that I wanted to move on. So in 2011, I stepped away from that position, and I kind of consider my current role more of uh, free safety. By title, vice chair, I don't really know what that means. My main role is in faculty development, and I still do a lot of teaching. And I guess I would honestly say that the reason I stepped away from the program director position was to get more involved in the residency. And it's a bitter irony that one person would have to do that to step away from program director role to become more involved in the residency. But that's really the way it was because I guess I'll take my shot at the ACGME. They've they've really turned the program director role into a desk jockey position in many ways. And so it's been really great. This is probably a, a job now that I could not have asked for or imagined 
in years past because there's really no paperwork requirements and yet I can do as much teaching as I want, focus on faculty development and developing the residence as much as I want, teach as much as I want, I get involved in some writing and uh, it's just a, a fantastic role to be in. The dynamic is silly. Do you get to spend a lot of time with residents? Do you find that you're just everything else you're involved in? How do you balance that time? Well, I still work about eight to 10 shifts a month. And I think that's good. I think if I worked less than that, I wouldn't really get to spend as much time with them as I would want. And I wouldn't get to know them as well. So it's a pretty good balance there with the rest of my non-clinical time is spent either in conference or working on lectures or coming up with ideas for education or working on writing. So in terms of balance, I don't really know that there's a definite balance. I'm not really sure that anyone's ever found proper or perfect balance, but I try to prioritize different things. And of course, my shifts are always an opportunity to work with the residents and teach. I really enjoy those. And outside of that, I spend a decent amount of time, again, with the residents or junior faculty and as much time as possible with the family. Oh, that's great. The question I'm sure you get asked a lot is what drew you to cardiology and EKGs? How did you even end up here? Sure. So that's it's an interesting twist how things happen. But my original interest was actually emergency geriatrics. In fact, when I was a medical student, I had developed an interest in emergency geriatrics and wanted to develop that into my academic niche down the road. It was very, very new at the time. Even the thought of having a curriculum or a different focus on emergency geriatrics was very new. But I had done some research in medical school in geriatrics, and so that was my interest. Almost to the point that I did a combined program in EMIM with the plan to do a geriatric fellowship afterwards. But that didn't really pan out because the programs I looked at were not really what I was looking for. So I did emergency medicine, and I thought at the end of my residency, I was going to do or create a geriatric emergency medicine fellowship. So this is back in the early to mid-90s when it was still very new. And I put a program together, but unfortunately, the funding for that fell through. And so I decided at that point that I was just going to go out and join a faculty. And so I interviewed around the Philadelphia area where I was doing residency, and I interviewed at Maryland. And Things really worked out well in Maryland, and it was the right group and the right time. So I I joined the faculty there. My wife, or the person who ended up becoming my wife, was a year behind me in residency in internal medicine. So when I finished residency, she still had another year of residency to go. And so I originally thought I was just going to stay in Philadelphia for a year. And then when she finished residency, we would both look for jobs somewhere. But the Maryland position was so perfect for me that I just took it. And then for a year, I commuted from Philadelphia to Baltimore. So 100 miles, and I was joking, I got to know every toll booth operator on I-95 and every Mrs. Fields along the way, and it worked for a year, and then after she finished residency, she found an internal medicine job in Annapolis, and so that's where we moved. In terms of where my academic niche ended up going, when I joined the faculty at Maryland, my original plan was still to develop a curriculum in emergency geriatrics, but it was very slow to develop, and in the meantime... One of the things that I kind of noticed as being a new faculty member there in Maryland's program was that there wasn't a lot of EKG training or EKG teaching. Now, in my residency at at Jefferson, I felt that the electrocardiography teaching was really great. As second years, we got to spend a couple weeks working with this internationally known cardiologist named Edward Chung. 
who ran the heart station. And so we all got to learn EKGs really well in that residency program. So when I went to Maryland, I felt, well, that was something I was pretty good at by virtue of simply being a Jefferson grad and something that Maryland probably needed to brush up a little bit on. So then I started doing some little mini lectures for the residents in, in electrocardiography. And the more of those that I did, I guess the more that other faculty members that were more senior to me started thinking of me as the cardiac guy because I was doing all these little mini lectures and EKGs. And to be totally honest, I really didn't like emergency cardiology at all. I hated it. The only thing about emergency cardiology I liked was EKGs. And I think that's largely because the way emergency cardiology is taught by cardiologists is very complicated. Anyway, they started thinking of me as a cardiac guy. They started assigning me lectures in the curriculum on acute management of MI and valve disorders and cardiomyopathy and other things like that. I did those lectures and in the meantime, during my first year, I did the ASEP teaching fellowship and I think I learned how to teach and lecture pretty well and that was a skill that I worked on a lot. And so I gradually became the cardiac guy at Maryland, even though my original interest was geriatrics. And then as my career developed, I started getting more and more opportunities off campus and then nationally to do lectures on emergency cardiology all the while not telling people that I really wanted to do emergency geriatrics. So that kind of became a side interest. And eventually I really developed a strong interest in emergency cardiology and I really enjoy it. But it, it really didn't start that way. I was a yes kind of person. So anytime somebody asked me to do something, I said yes. And that really led my career in a very different path. So I'm glad I did. The fellowship that you did with ASAP, did that have a cardiology spin to it? Yeah, so in the ASAP Teaching Fellowship, which is a, a fantastic one-year curriculum, I guess, you're required to come up with a curriculum. So during the course of that year, you develop your own curriculum and try to find a way of incorporating that curriculum into your own residency. And when I was kind of trying to figure out what exactly am I going to do with this curriculum, I thought about creating a geriatric curriculum, but it really was going to end up being redundant because right around that time, SAM had put together an entire curriculum on geriatric emergency medicine. In fact, even they published a, a textbook on geriatric emergency medicine. And so it, it didn't make sense for me to come up with my own curriculum because there already was a textbook on it. So I decided to put a curriculum together on something different. And so I just looked around the Maryland residency curriculum and it felt that they probably can use a little more brushing up on emergency cardiology because at the time I think it was teaching in the CCU, for example, wasn't all that strong, and the case mix wasn't all that strong. And so I ended up putting together a curriculum focused on emergency cardiology. And during my first year also, I had a slight reduction in shifts. So I kind of did a teaching fellowship of my own during the first year on faculty. And that combined with the curriculum in emergency cardiology and the ASAP teaching fellowship, again, all lent more, I guess, thought to everyone that I must be the cardiac guy. But the ASAP Teaching Fellowship, just to put a plug in for them, was really great. And a lot of our residents still target that when they finish. I oversee a faculty development fellowship at Maryland now, and all of our faculty development fellows go to that fellowship every year. So we usually have three or four people in that fellowship every year. Tell us more about developing that fellowship. So I guess if you look at most faculty, or, or at least you know, years ago, back when I was finishing residency, if you ask most faculty, how did you learn how to be a really good faculty member? I think most of us would probably say that you finish your residency and then for the next four or five years as a junior faculty member, you kind of flounder trying to figure out, well, 
how do I get invited to speak at this conference? How do I get invited to write a textbook chapter or a review article? How do I learn about research? How do I learn how to teach at the bedside in the cadaver lab or sim lab or even bedside teaching in the emergency department? So most people just try to figure it out on their own. And then there's some courses out there. For example, CORD has a what they call a Navigating the Academic Waters course, which essentially a faculty development track at their annual scientific assembly. And SAM has put together a lot of great faculty development lectures over the years. So there's a number of different lectures and courses that you can go to to kind of learn things. But there was really no packaged curriculum on how to become a good, solid faculty member. So I figured, well, I'll just put this fellowship together. And the idea is if somebody's willing to spend a year after graduating residency in which they do that fellowship, and they probably work maybe about two shifts a week, so it's a half-time schedule, and all the rest of that time they spend doing faculty development activities, my goal would be that by the time you finish that one-year fellowship in faculty development, you will have accomplished as much as if you had gone out and spent five or six years as a normal faculty member. And I think it's worked out pretty well. Most all of our faculty development fellowship grads, by the time they finish, they have a really nice teaching portfolio of lectures that they've done on campus, some off campus. Some have even made it out to do national lectures before they're done. They've all got a couple of manuscripts and learned some basic writing skills. One of the important things that's involved in faculty development is getting involved in the national organizations. So one of the requirements is I tell everybody, for every organization that you're a member of, ASEP, SAM, CORD, AAM, join a committee. You have to be a member of a committee or a task force or interest group with every organization that you're in. And that helps develop your network also. So by the time somebody finishes that fellowship, they've got at least a couple of publications. They've gotten to do various types of teaching big auditorium lectures or small group teaching or bedside teaching. They've learned about that. They've also gotten involved in, in the committee work and learned how to write. And so I think it has kind of put together a lot of different skills for them. And there's a handful of books that I get them, which are part of that curriculum also. It's been very productive and people have graduated from that faculty development fellowship with CVs that would probably rival anyone else who's been out of residency for five years trying to figure it out on their own like I did and, and many other people have to do. I think it's great that you have a passion for both training faculty and residents as well, which is amazing. Curtailing in a different direction, you also run or are a fee founder for ekgweekly.com. What inspired that? What created that idea? How do you keep it going? Where do you get your EKGs from? Sure. As I became known as a cardiac guy, a lot of the lectures that I got were EKG lectures. And I really enjoyed EKGs back when I finished residency. And so I started reading more and more about EKGs. And again, the honest truth about how I learned a lot of electrocardiography is during that first year out of residency, commuting back and forth to and from Baltimore, from Philadelphia, I got rid of all my morning shifts. So almost all my shifts were 3 to 11 shifts or 6P to 2A shifts or some overnights. And in order to make that two-hour drive, I would oftentimes really load up with a lot of caffeine before getting in my car and driving back in the early morning hours. And so by the time I'd arrive back in Philadelphia, I would be wide awake and I could never sleep. So what I started doing is that when I got back to our apartment in Philadelphia, I would spend about half an hour just going through EKGs. 
uh, in some teaching files, and it would put me right to sleep. But honest to God, every, every pretty much every night, I reviewed 10 EKGs from books or DVDs or teaching files. And so during that year, because of my insomnia doing because of caffeine, I learned a tremendous amount of electrocardiography. After we moved to Maryland, I didn't have that problem anymore, but I kept reading EKGs. And every night before I go to bed, I would try to read through about four or five, six EKGs per night. I learned a lot of electrocardiography. And so much of it was stuff that we never learned in residency. And so much of it was life-saving stuff. Stuff like a Wellen syndrome and Brugada syndrome and the Scarbosa criteria and all these really life-saving things that are never taught in residency, or at least back then were never taught. And so I started putting together lectures to teach other people about these things that I'm learning, reading through the electrocardiography literature. And the lectures were very, very well received because they're practical and useful and things that people never learned in residency. So that really got me heading down this pathway of not just emergency cardiology, but a lot of EKG teaching and lectures. Well, then kids came along, and I've got three kids, and uh, try to spend more time at home instead of going out and lecturing all over the place. And so I thought, well, maybe what I could do is start doing a lot of those lectures online and just posting them online. And so I learned about various technologies. Uh, I'm not a techie kind of person, but there are some very simple computer programs that our IT people showed me and taught me about, where I could just lecture into a microphone and draw stuff using an iPad and do little 15 or 20 minute mini lectures on various topics and just post them online. And I thought, well, this is going to be great because I'm not going to have to travel very much anymore. It didn't really work out that way. I have cut down on travel, but those little mini lectures didn't cut back as much as I had hoped. Nevertheless, it became a passion, something that I really enjoy doing. And so I have this weekly website now called ECG Weekly, where every Monday I'll post a 15 or 20 minute case. It's become very, very popular. People send me cases from everywhere. So you ask, where do the cases come from? They come from everywhere. People all around the world will send me interesting cases and I will ask their permission to post them. And if they're okay with it, I'll post them, I'll discuss the case. I think people really enjoy that. People enjoy seeing cases from everywhere rather than just Maryland cases. It's kind of nice to know that you've been seeing the same thing as somebody else saw in Taiwan or somebody in Poland or South Africa or whatever. So I guess in some ways it kind of brings the whole world together in electrocardiography, which sounds kind of corny, but in many ways I think it does. I think people have really benefited from that site and I've really enjoyed doing it. I didn't realize you got input from everywhere, like yeah. around the world. That's yeah. amazing. I would say probably the majority of cases I post there are actually from other people. And I, I always credit them and, and say where the cases are sent from and try to make sure that I never use a case unless they specifically give me permission to use it. Sometimes people will send me disaster cases, and I usually don't post those unless they tell me for sure that it's not going to end up in QA or MedMal especially in the U.S., because anything you post online is at risk for showing up in MedMal. In fact, I have experience with that. When I first created this website, it was actually a free open access site that was posted on our university website. And then when I was doing some depositions, I found that some of my cases were being played back to me in court or during the deposition. So lawyers were finding these free cases online and using them in depositions and trials and so when I found out about that, 
I decided to take that website down. So the free open access site got taken down, and now it's a subscription site. They generally don't have access to proprietary material. People ask me, you know, what happened to the free website? And that's a big reason why that happened. But for that reason also, if people send me disaster cases that could possibly end up in litigation, I never use those cases. That makes sense. That's a whole different aspect that I feel like we, I'm sure, don't think of. Do you feel that residencies in general should have more set curriculum for EKG learning? Or is there any advice that you would give to residents that want to be more expert in this area? I think most residencies, if not all of them, have some EKG training. I think that there's probably never enough. Even now, when I open up a textbook on electrocardiography, there's still stuff that I'm learning, which is intimidating to think that there's so much out there So I think that you can never learn enough. That's probably true for most everything in medicine, though, right? The reason I would say that we should try to do more EKG training is just because there is so much that patient care relies on in terms of the EKG. I mean, if if an EKG shows you something that could potentially be deadly, you know about it immediately. And if you don't know how to read the EKG, well, emergency cardiac complications can occur and kill people very, very quickly. And I always remind people that the EKG is really nothing more than just a piece of paper with some ink on it. So it's relatively cheap and it can be done at the bedside and anybody, no matter how sick they are, you don't have to send somebody off to some other part of the hospital to do the test. And uh, no matter how sick someone is, you can get an EKG on them and oftentimes make some life-saving diagnoses. So I think it's a really important part of our specialty and there's probably never enough training out there. For people that want to improve their skills, what I found worked for me was to just know the basics And so find some good basic book, read it, and then master it. And then once you've done that, go and look for some other teaching files just to get more and more practice. And that's a a big part of the basis behind the ECG weekly site because essentially that's really intended to just be practice, practice, practice. And when I first started doing those, the idea was that our residents would watch these cases, and over the course of a three-year residency, they will have watched well over 150 cases. And I think the constant repetition of seeing case after case after case can only just make you a lot better. So I think first thing, master the basics, and then after that, it's all about just practice, 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 practice as many cases as you can. I think every residency sees thousands of EKGs every year. You know, why not? Why shouldn't every residency just put together their own interesting teaching file and then make that available to all of their own residents? If every residency did that, I think that would be so great for residency training of every program. Where do you see cardiology in the future in the emergency department setting? There's been talk of like TEEs, like intercardio, like intercode. Where do you think we're headed in cardiology? In sure. Well, I, I think technology is becoming a very big part of the field. And the TE thing is real exciting. I'm by no means an ultrasound master. I'm probably more at the beginner level in terms of ultrasound. But I think if we can get to the point of routinely doing TEs, it would be amazing in terms of diagnosing cardiac conditions and also tough arrhythmias. I think we're slowly heading in that direction. In terms of how long it'll take before we get there with the TE specifically, I think that's going to take a good number of years just because it's highly technically dependent, I guess. Uh, ultrasound technology is getting better and better, and even here at the exhibit hall, there's people exhibiting all kinds of amazing devices that go beyond just the basics of ultrasound, but they can actually suggest certain diagnoses and, and 
some things that can measure ejection fraction for you without you having to be an echo tech. So I think technology is going to go a long way. CAT scan and cardiac MRI are becoming more and more available, and so those are going to help pick up a lot of diagnoses as well. So I think those will definitely become a bigger part of the field. But the lonely old EKG is still there. It's been around for 120 years now, and every time people predict that there's going to be some new replacement, it just keeps chugging along. There was this 80-lead EKG a handful of years ago, and that fell away. And other types of fancy EKG, there's this... I guess Apple Watch type of thing that can come up with certain diagnoses based on your rhythm. And a lot of people have tried to replace the EKG with something more advanced, but it it still hasn't gone anywhere. And so I I think it's still the first most important test that people have to be really good at. And then you can think about all those other technological advances after that. I think it's going to be one of those like cheap, quick way to have a diagnosis Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You also use Twitter a lot for EGs and kind of teaching, do you find that that's the best medium to reach out to your followers? Yeah, I guess so. There's so many people that are on Twitter now. It is a good way to reach out to a lot of people. Politicians obviously know that as well, which we won't go there. Yeah, Twitter does reach a lot of people. And I've never been a Facebook person. I just never got into Facebook. I think Facebook was very popular also. My kids tell me that Facebook's really old, and so I don't know if how many people are still using Facebook to advertise things or to get word out. But I think Twitter is so quick and so easy, and it, it doesn't take up a lot of time to be on Twitter. That I, I think it's become a very successful form of communicating with people and asking people questions and getting quick replies. I don't know where it's going to go, but it, it is kind of interesting to see how Twitter has become such an important part, such a big part of uh, medical education now. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of like foam there. And I think it's cool that we get to kind of reach out to people like you as well and have questions and have them answered too. Do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you still want to be the cardiac guy? Do you see yourself heading more towards geriatric tract? Where I am right now is where I see myself in 10 years I still have a strong interest in geriatric emergency medicine, but some of our junior faculty have adopted that now, and I'm trying to hand more opportunities off to them. There's only so much you can do, and I think when you're young, when you're a junior faculty, you want to do everything, and as your time gets more and more limited by different things, you start realizing the importance of trying to focus, and so I think emergency geriatrics is really important, and I still do lectures here and there, but I'm happy to hand off a lot of those things to some of our other junior faculty that are looking for their own niche. So I I think emergency cardiology will still be my main area of interest, especially because I feel like there's still so much to learn. And every year there's new articles and new advances and new thoughts about how to manage this or that condition. So uh, it it never gets boring. And the same thing for electrocardiography. Every time, like I said, every time I open up a book, I learn something new. So there's still a lot left to learn. Do you still get patients that scare you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) All the time. Absolutely. There's still a lot of patients that I just have no clue with what to do. I guess that's part of the fun and challenge of emergency medicine. Yeah. Do you ever get handed an EKG and you're like, I'm not sure? Oh, all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. And that's why maybe TEE will come out and answer a lot of those questions. But there's some real tough ones out there that I look at and I can't figure it out. So that just tells me I need to read more. I think that makes you a little bit more human in our eyes. And it's like, okay, we have a lot to learn as well. Well, if you listen to my lectures, a lot of the cases I present are my own disasters. So 
know, it's, it's good to learn from your own mistakes, and I've learned a lot from that. Yeah. Do you find that just seeing more as a attending kind of helped you get better as well? Yeah, most definitely. I definitely see a lot more cases now. The more cases you see, the better you're going to be. I'm trying to emphasize that to the residents also. I think years ago, Peter Rosen made a comment that you can only achieve competency as a, an emergency medicine physician after seeing 4,000 patients or 40,000 patients, or I don't remember what the number was, but it really attested to the fact that there's a certain number of people that you need to see, number of patients that you need to see before you get to the point of being competent. And that's not excellent, that's just competency. And then after that, you have to keep striving. So as a resident, we try to emphasize to our residents also that you've, you've got to see a lot of patients. The more you see, the better you're going to get, the faster you're going to improve. I think that as an attending, I've certainly learned a lot more than I did in residency just because I started seeing a lot more patients. Last question. Tell us some interesting facts about yourself, what you do for fun. Interesting facts. Well, I think a lot of people know I'm a Princess Bride fanatic. I've seen that movie close to 100 times and can quote most everything. So I, I have a lecture actually on secrets of the Princess Bride that will make you a better leader in emergency medicine. Definitely going to go back and listen to that. <laughs> and what else? A lot of my time is spent with the kids. I have a 12th grader and two 9th graders, twins. And so they certainly occupy a lot of my time, as they should. I like to run very slow, but I like to run. How did you life. get into Princess Bride? There was one day in college where I was at home over the summer, and I just watched this movie. This is back with VHS cassettes, right? I watched it over and over and over, and there was a lot of big stars in it with some really great humor, very subtle humor. So every time you watch it, you pick up something else. And it's, it's one of the very few movies that are very entertaining and yet don't have gratuitous violence or sex or profanity or anything like that. It's just a very, very well-crafted movie. The director is Rob Reiner, and... There's some fantastic actors in it, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane and many others. And it's, it's just a really fun movie, and it can be watched by anyone, no matter how old or how young, you know, from grandparents all the way down to, to young kids. It's just a, a heartwarming movie. Aww. And also it's, it's a nice movie because the nice guy gets the girl at the end. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. <laughs> well, I can't express to you how grateful we are for joining us today and for just helping us learn more about you and inspires you because you inspire us. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thanks, Tina. It's good to be here.